Welcome back to another episode of Transformation Talks. I'm your host, Sam Forget, and today we'll be joined by Jordan Syatt, who is a trainer, online coach, the founder of The Inner Circle, and most recently, an author. Jordan, thank you for being here, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to see you again. It's been years since we've known each other, so it's nice to see you again. I appreciate, for, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. And actually, I don't know if you'll remember this, but in terms of our backstory, I was an in-person trainer similar to you. I got started very young. I was 16, 17 when I started working with people. And fast forward, I guess it would have been four or five years. I'm seeing this whole online training thing and I wasn't sure what it was about. And does that mean you Skype people during sessions and how does that actually work? And you were running, I think it was like a $20 webinar at the time of how to be an online trainer. And me and other 10, maybe 10 other people came to it and you broke down every step of like, here's how it actually works. Here's what to focus on. But my biggest takeaway that I still actually tell younger coaches and trainers now is how to overcome almost the nerves of fearing what other people will think or say, is my content any good? Are other trainers and coaches who have been in the industry forever going to judge me? And you just had me do this very simple audit. Sam, do you actually think that you can help people in an online setting? If somebody hires you, can you help them? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Then go do it. Actually go do the thing. <laughs> so I appreciate that push. That might've been 2016 or 2017, but it's largely responsible for me going online fully two years later and then doing what I do now. I love that, man. Yeah, that was that was 2016. That was, man, that's wow. crazy. That's and it's crazy that 2016 was a while ago. That's like the weird part. <laughs> the last two years in particular feel like a blur. So it was like we had yeah. that little blip and here we are. Um, but on that note, Jordan, one thing I'd love to ask you about, I was nervous at a very small scale of the 46 people who would see an article I put out and what they would think. With the audience that you've built now, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, does any part of you still get, I want to say nervous when putting out content, but do you ever struggle with the backlash or criticism or the quote unquote hate that you might get online? And if so, how do you overcome that and stay the course anyway and just keep doing your thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think everybody struggles with it to a certain degree. Uh, I think some people are better at handling it than others. And I think the more you do it, the more desensitized to it you become. It's sort of like a doctor when, um, when a doctor first starts working as a doctor or maybe in their residency, whatever it is, they have their first patient die on their watch. It's can be super overwhelming and like, can maybe they have to be sent home, maybe take a week off, whatever it is. But over years and years and years, like they see patients die and like, they can get back to work immediately. And it's not like they don't care, but they get become more desensitized to it. And it doesn't affect everything else they do that day or that week. And I think it's similar to, to getting hate in online content where when I first got it, when I got like one comment saying like, you're an idiot, my whole week was ruined. I'd be like I, the whole week. And I'd try and get in conversations. Why do you think that? And then I'd be like, so upset about it. And, uh, and then now like I, I care but I could see the comment and I'll be like, ah, oh, that sucks, whatever. And then just keep going. Right. And I think the other thing about it that's interesting for me to realize is when I was younger, I tried to avoid any of those types of conflicts or any of those types of comments. So I would make content specifically to avoid potentially any backlash, which made any backlash way worse. Right. Because if I'm trying to avoid it actively and I'm not saying anything deliberately, so I don't get any backlash, but then the backlash comes, it's way worse. So now I'll say things not deliberately to get it, 
but I just say things as I truly believe it, which will invite more backlash. But because I truly believe it and because I expect it, it doesn't hurt nearly as much. That makes total sense. It's funny you mentioned that you remember the first comment you got because as a slight aside, I still remember the first mean comment I got. It was when I was powerlifting. I put up a board press. And obviously, if you've never powerlifted, the idea of putting a wooden board on your chest, (laughs) what are you doing? And I think it was some high school kid. I was maybe 19 or 20. He was probably 14 or 15. Didn't follow me. Wasn't connected with me on anything. And the comment was, this is the shittiest fucking bench I have ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) The same as you, Jordan. I just wanted to be like, well, you know, in powerlifting, this is called an accessory lift and, you know, all these things. And I don't actually think I've gotten a comment that means sense, fortunately, (laughs) but I know what you mean, where you you get a little bit more desensitized, even to whether it's an email unsubscriber or somebody trolling you on an Instagram poll or things like that, you get a little bit more used to it. A hundred percent, whether it's a client leaving or an email unsubscribe or losing followers or a mean comment, it, it never fully doesn't bother you. There's always some aspect that will, and I, I actually very much think that if it didn't bother you at all, like if there was literally zero, like, ah, whatever, like I literally don't care. I think you're like a psychopath. <laughs> like I think that's not normal human behavior to, to not care about that. So I think the fact that you do care is important, but how much do you care and how much does it affect your day to day? And if it's affecting your day to day on a drastic level, your relationships with other people, how productive you are, that means that you, you've got a real issue you need, you need to work on. But to care at all is normal human behavior. Yeah, that's a super valuable distinction. It's what one of the signs of a sociopath. If you have <laughs> absolutely no yeah. remorse, no concern for other people's feelings, thoughts. Hundred percent. That's exactly right. Yep. Because that's why when people say like, "Just don't care what people think," I'm like, "That's fucking stupid." Mm-hmm. Of like, what a stupid thing to say. Of course, you're going to care what people think. If you don't, you're a sociopath. You're a psychopath. Like hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. One of the uh, counter arguments I heard to that once was. The same people who were saying, fuck what anybody else thinks, absolutely everything. Well, why are you wearing the jeans that you're wearing? Because you thought they would look good. So to some degree, you cared what people thought. Why do you have you know, your beard or your hair styled the way that because you thought that it looked better than something else? So even the people saying it, the irony is it's healthy to care. And it's something, as you just mentioned here, Jordan, that's totally reasonable and admirable. You know, it's something that we actually want. And and. Uh- on top of that, which is all great points, they're saying things because they've gotten a good response to saying that thing before, right? So when they're like, yeah, just don't give a shit. And people are like, yeah, like, I love when you say that. Like they're caring what people think. If you, if you feel good when someone gives you a compliment, then you care what people think. If you feel good when someone says, hey, like that, I loved when you said that, you care what people think. It works both ways. It's not only for negatives. You can't just isolate that. So- Again, it's normal human behavior to care. It's just how much is it affecting you? And, and if it's affecting you too much, so same thing with the scale, right? Like if you're stepping on the scale every day and you look at the number on the scale and like the scale, it didn't go down. Like you're probably, you might not be happy about it, but like, cool, whatever. It doesn't fucking matter. I'm going to keep going on with my day. But if you step on the scale and the number is, isn't what you want it to be. And then you end up like smashing the scale and it ruins your day. And you're just, you're so upset about it. Like you've got a fucking problem with the scale. Like that's, that's not the scale's fault. That's your fault. And you can work on that. Absolutely. All awesome points. And Jordan pivoting slightly still under the umbrella of creating content, your book, eat it. How did you decide 
kind of what direction to go with the book. Obviously, you've been putting out content for years. There's so many different angles that you could take with the things that you wanted to collaborate with Mike on when you were writing it. So could you tell me a little bit more of the backstory, the big picture, why for obviously why you felt like this book was important to write and then how you approached narrowing down what the message was going to be? Yeah. So, I mean, basically Mike and I are like, our specialties are, are both nutrition and strength training, like both of them. It really boiled down to, we're going to write a fitness book for sure. Um, and what do we want the focus to be? We didn't want a massive encyclopedia of a book. We wanted a book that would be easy to read and enjoyable to read to the everyday person. We're not trying to market to personal trainers. We're not trying to market to coaches. Like this is for the 25, 30, 35, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year old person who just wants to lose weight and be healthier and have a better relationship with food. Um, so because of that, and because of like looking at the world as it is today, it, the major issue people have is with nutrition. Like this, that's the biggest, biggest issue. So we wanted to tackle that biggest issue first, which was like, how do we help you develop a better relationship with food? How do we help you understand how much you should be eating, what you should be eating? And how do you incorporate that into your life rather than trying to fit your life into your nutrition? So that's really, it, it really boiled down to what's the biggest problem today and how can we solve that problem? And it also worked out because like, that's what we're most passionate about. So there is potential talk of, of maybe doing one more focused on lifting now. Um, we're not sure about that yet. So the first one does include lifting stuff, but it's more at the end and basically like just everything, like the, the need to knows it's not like super in detail. Um, so there is potential of making, so the first book was titled eat it. The next one, if we do it might be titled lift it something along those lines. Um, but the biggest thing was how do we solve the biggest problem and in an enjoyable way for the vast majority of people. And what do you feel like the biggest culprits are that hurt people's relationship with food? Why do you feel like so many people struggle to not think of foods as inherently good or bad and not think of carbs as always fattening and always evil? What do you think are the things that send most people down that rabbit hole? Man, there's a lot. And unfortunately, I think one of the biggest ones is just the prevalence of people saying that it's bad for you. I mean, I go online, I see now motherfuckers saying that like vegetables are bad for you and <laughs> fruits are bad. Thing, yeah. <laughs> and all you should eat is meat. And I'm like, listen, I love meat like more than anybody, but to say you should get rid of fruits and vegetables and lentils and nuts and seeds and all of that and only eat meat is fucking stupid to such an unbelievable level. It's, it's hard to comprehend. So, I mean, there's so much, and, and the worst part is like these people have MD in their handles and they're doctors. Now, when you actually look at it there, he's, he's, this guy specifically is not like a, a, a nutritionist. He's a psychologist and he's spewing off shit about nutrition that he has no idea, but either way, I mean, there are nutritionists who say similar things. And I think, I think it's very easy to take these people's words at face value. And you have all of these messages, these conflicting messages. And, uh, it's, it's very, uh, it has, it leaves a big imprint on your psyche. When someone says like, this is bad for you, this will give you cancer. This will make you die early. Like that is not something to say lightly. And when someone says that and someone hears it, it's going to leave an imprint on your, on your being, on your soul, on your brain. Like it, it is not easy to get out. So I'm not surprised so many people have terrible relationships with food. I'm not surprised so many people are scared shitless of these types of food, of, of any food. I mean, 
the the vegans will say, uh, you know, meat is going to give you cancer and meat is bad for you. And the carnivores will say vegetables are going to give you cancer and fruits are going to give you cancer. And then you have uh, paleo people who say, you know, uh, carbs are going to be cancer, whatever, like whatever it is. You always have another group of people saying that something else is going to give you cancer and you're going to die. And that it which is unfortunate for many reasons, not least of which the causes of cancer are so nuanced and so oftentimes outside of our control that like it, it really I feel, I feel for the people who are struggling with cancer and who have struggled with cancer, especially for those who've done everything quote unquote, right. And they still get cancer because it's completely out of their control. There are things in life that we just can't control. Like, even if you do everything right, you wait, you get your sleep, you eat well, you exercise well, you do all this stuff, you manage your stress, you could still get cancer. So it's the idea that like these things are, are inherently causing that it's, it's, I mean, I'm hoping for laws to come out soon to like to really moderate how these things are being pushed out there because it's it's really, really affecting people. Um, and I'm a, the biggest proponent of free speech, but there has to be uh, I mean, there are, are uh, regulations on everything that we do. And it, like especially if there's false advertising, and like, there's there's regulations around it. There has to be for this type of of. Uh, of just charlatan nonsense of, of fear mongering bullshit that is scaring people into thinking that as soon as they have one food, they're going to get cancer. And so, yeah, that's a, a roundabout way to answer the question, but there's a lot to discuss. Oh, absolutely. That'd be such a game changer if there was a legal component. And like you, I want people to be able to communicate generally how they want, but also a level of accountability. If you yes. were saying, if you have this, this horrible thing is going to happen and you're going to burst into flames if you have a French <laughs> fry and like, that's not the case. And it's funny, Jordan, I get in this, I guess, kind of like this echo chamber of other coaches who don't put out this nonsense. So sometimes I, I'm putting out content that says like, oh, don't listen to people who say not to eat fruit. And I'm like, do people really still say this shit? And I recently onboarded a new client and we were on the phone and she was working with her trainer. And he was telling her one of the reasons she wasn't making progress is because she was she was having oatmeal and berries. And I'm like, look, like, yes, you know, theoretically, you could have just an insane amount of berries and oatmeal that would put you in a calorie surplus. But I promise you, if you take 100 people who are struggling with their weight, struggling with their health and fitness, nobody's going to say, yeah, it was the fucking blueberry that did me in. Like, that's what put me over the top. So then I get this reality check of, yeah, I still got to put out content that says, eat fruit. <laughs> it's good for you. Cause there's still plenty of people who get caught up in that cycle. Unfortunately, well-intentioned people who end up being on the receiving end of misinformation that makes them scared to have these things. Dude, I feel like that end of the industry is picking up steam. Like I thought it was going to slow down very quickly, but I, like I, I deliberately go to these pages, read the comment section. Like I like to see what these people are saying. And it seems like it's actually picking up traction, which is the craziest thing to me that we're living in a world in which it's picking up traction to say that fruit and vegetables are bad for you. And like, like it's un and not to mention I I've the, the older I'm getting and, you know, I'm going to have a kid soon. I'm thinking more about just health and longevity in general. I've been speaking with doctors and especially around like uh, uh colon cancer and colon cancer is scary as shit. Like all cancer is scary, but like some cancers are like, are much more difficult to deal with and much more invasive. And anyway, um, looking at the rise of colon cancer and speaking to a lot of these doctors about it, there's no question that, listen, red meat is not necessarily bad for you, but over excessive red meat with not enough fiber is without question, 
the biggest leading cause of colon cancer right now. Like there's no question about it from what my conversations with uh, doctors specializing in this. And this diet is just advocating that literally exact more red meat, no fiber. I'm like, I'm scared shitless for what's going to happen to these people. It's, and I don't want anyone to get cancer. I don't want anyone to get sick. I'm just worried that these people have such a huge platform and are saying the most nonsensical, dangerous things for the purposes of clout. It's insane. How would you suggest that somebody, you know, it's funny, every coach likes to say, I'll help you sift through the bullshit and find a plan that actually works. But obviously, if everybody is saying that and there's a lot of misinformation, somebody is spouting bullshit. So how would somebody who did not go to school for exercise science, who doesn't have, you know, certifications in nutrition, how does your quote unquote regular person decipher what's good information and what's not? Because understandably, if you see you know, doctor so-and-so, you're going to think, oh, they're a doctor. They probably know what they're talking about. Just like perhaps if you and I, as fitness nutrition people, maybe if we were, you know, looking more into real estate or we're looking more into, I don't know, cryptocurrency or something that's a bit more out there. And we see in somebody's bio, oh, I'm a seven-time award-winning real estate agent of the year. We might go, oh, they have good shit. And we, we follow that person based on that perceived authority or status. So how would you recommend that somebody actually deciphers what's what? It's a great question. It's a super difficult question, right? Because it's hard to say, do the research because I mean, knowing how to do research is a skill in and of itself that you have to be educated on. Mm -hmm. And you're through doing research, you're going to find things that are wrong and incorrect. And for me, I've thought a lot about this. How do I help people figure out what is right? Um, without just saying like, do the research and how can I help them do it? And even without even saying, even if they know how to do research, it's still a ton of time. People have kids, they have jobs. They have like, this isn't their specialty. How can they figure it out? The best way that I've come up with to explain it is think about it in the most common sense way possible. If someone says carbs are bad for you or rice is bad for you. Okay. Well, hold on. I know that Japanese, the Japanese culture eats white rice every day. And they're among the healthiest people in the world. They eat rice with sushi and all this. And uh, I know that in France, they eat carbs all the time. They have croissants, they have pastries. What's going on? It's their portion control. They're just not eating so much of it. Okay. So I know carbs aren't necessarily bad for you just solely based on that. Okay. Well, what about fruits and vegetables? That one is just fucking stupid. Like (laughs) someone says fruits are bad for you. Like, okay, well, I don't care if they're a doctor. Like that doesn't make sense. Fruits are uh, like, no one got fat from having too much, too many strawberries, too many blueberries, too much watermelon. Like that never happened. Um, I saw another guy saying like, uh, and this is a little bit more nuanced, but some, a guy was saying like there, you should never, um, you should never jog either walk or sprint, but don't do anything in between. And I'm like, Okay. So if you hear someone say something stupid like that, just think about all of the amazingly healthy people who jog all the time, right? So it would it really, I mean, listen, walking is great. Sprinting is great. Jogging is great. The reality is this stuff is so much more simple than people make it out to be. And the rea- everything works. Everything works as long as you can be consistent with it. So you have to think about what can you be consistent with? Could you be consistent only eating meat and no fruits and vegetables forever? Probably not. 
Could, on the other hand, could you be consistent never eating any type of meat and only eating fruits and vegetables? Some people can, very few, but if, if you're not the product, like if you love meat, you love fish, you love animal products, but you also like want to include more fruits and vegetables in your diet, like just do that in moderate, it's all moderation. But thinking about it from a common sense perspective, thinking about, okay, do I know there are healthy people in the world that do this on a large scale? you're probably fine. Like that's really it. And that's where my methodology has evolved to after studying all these different things and falling for all these different traps, figure, trying to figure out what's the best workout, what's the best diet. It really boils down to what can you do consistently? That's I really love, it. Love, yeah. You almost zoom out and look from a macro perspective of what makes the most sense. And this is actually the way that progressive overload was explained to me because as a 13 year old reading muscle and fitness and being told I have to wake up in the middle of the night to drink casein protein. I'm, you know, I'm thinking like, Oh, that's the answer. But when progressive overload, just the idea, idea of doing measurably more over time in your workouts was explained to me, the person who explained it said, look, Sam, if you want to have bigger, stronger triceps, like, yeah, we can talk, you know, time under tension and mechanical drop sets and all these things. Or if you take your close grip bench press from, I don't know, 135 for a set of eight, to 185 for a set of eight, or you're doing body weight dips or assisted dips, and you all of a sudden have a 25 pound plate hanging between your legs. Do you think that logically ignore all the biomechanics, all the physiology? Do you think that perhaps your triceps will adapt to some degree? Like, yeah, that makes sense. And like you said, there's nuance <laughs> to a lot of this stuff, but if you just zoom out, go macro of like, if I look at a hundred people who are pretty healthy, manage their hate, uh, excuse me, their hate, <laughs> manage their <laughs> weight pretty well. Do most of them eat fruits and vegetables? Yeah. And obviously, yeah. you know, there's the occasional exception, the occasional uh, nuance thing that makes it a little trickier, but overwhelmingly, I do think that's such a wonderful audit of does this actually make sense for me? Yeah. And, and we also have to look, this is actually something I was talking about the other day. This is super important. When we see these people online, it's very easy just to look at their bodies and assume that they're healthy, right? Assume, okay. Well, this guy's shredded or like this woman looks amazing in a bikini, but number one, and this is obvious, but we don't know what they're doing to edit those pictures or even their videos. Like you can edit videos with Photoshop to make you look different. But more importantly than that is you don't know what's going on on their insides, you don't know what's going on with their blood work. You don't know what their health status actually looks like. We could talk about relationship with food and orthorexia and all that other stuff. But I mean, from a physiological health perspective, someone can look amazing, but have super high blood pressure. Someone can look amazing and have really, really, really bad uh, uh, blood panels or have really, really, really bad issues that maybe they don't even know about. And I hope they figure it out and look at it, but we can't just look at their outside and say, oh, that, that is clearly healthy because that's what they do. Not to mention, I know people who are, I wouldn't say they're friends, but they're colleagues of mine who say that they follow one diet on social media and don't follow it in real life because that's what they're selling. So, I mean, you, not, you might have these people who are saying, oh, I'm carnivore. I do this, I do that. It's like, are they really like, are they actually doing that? And is, there, is their blood work good? Is, is their overall health status good? Just because they look a certain way does not mean that they're actually healthy. Super important to remember. Yeah, that's a, an absolutely wonderful point. I think the other thing for a lot of people to consider who don't plan on doing this professionally, whether it's as a coach or trainer, but or as a, a strength athlete or physique competitor is that work to reward ratio of let's say for a second that person with the eight pack was 
overwhelmingly healthy. If you look at their blood markers, their health status across the board, they're in a good place. We also have to look at what is that person sacrificing that may be worth it to them. And that's great. And all the power to them. What are they sacrificing on a daily basis? So if you come to us, you know, as your coach and say, you know, I kind of want a physique like that, or what, what's it going to take to look like her? The honest answer may not be something you like those, you know, weekend diner dates with your partner, the, you know, Tuesday night margaritas with your girlfriends, a lot of that stuff. I feel like a lot of people like to beat around the bush and say, I'll help you lose fat without giving up anything you love. I'm like, that takes giving up a lot of things that you love on a regular basis. So also considering those trade-offs and if you don't value it, that's fine. Obviously that's a very personalized decision, but it's also very important to be honest with what those trade-offs are. Dude, 100%. You're super well spoken. Like, I love everything you're saying. It's appreciate it, that. A lot of people listen, like, can you enjoy your favorite foods while losing weight? Yes, absolutely. Should you be able to do that? Yes, absolutely. But it depends where you are in your journey. If you're 35% body fat, then yeah, you're going to be able to enjoy a lot of your favorite foods while still losing weight. If you're 15% body fat and you want to get to 7% body fat, well, now we're talking about a, a very different protocol, a much more rigid protocol where yes, you could still enjoy a beer here and there. You could still enjoy a slice of pizza, but getting from already lean to really lean is completely different from going to overweight to healthy. And so when you're trying, if you're like, that's why a lot of people, they say things like, I want to lose the last 10 pounds. Why is the last 10 pounds so hard? It's like, because it's fucking brutal. And essentially you have to decide, okay, do I want to have more leniency with my nutrition and be about 10 pounds heavier or have less leniency with my nutrition and be 10 pounds lighter? Which one is more important to you? At this point in my life, I would way rather have a couple glasses of wine at night with my wife, have pizza once or twice a week, enjoy all this stuff and not worry about it and be about 10 pounds heavier. Whereas when I was 22, I like, would have gladly given up all of that stuff just to be shredded Pump all the your time. your girlfriend to be shredded all the time. A hundred, like I would have glad, <laughs> gladly done that for sure. Cause I was way more focused on that then. So it really depends where you are in life and what's more, most important to you, but don't let anyone trick you into believing that like you can have, have your cake and eat it too. That you can like, you can be absolutely shredded and still eat whatever you want, whatever quantity you want. That's, that's just absolutely insane. And they're trying to sell you something. Yeah. I had this conversation with a client recently. He's been with me for a while. He's had a pretty dramatic transformation and he kind of got from that phase one to phase two of he's in a much healthier spot now, but experiencing a little bit of friction recently of, you know, what's it going to take to go to this next quote unquote phase of progress. And we're realizing more and more, and we're kind of collaborating on it in real time that it may not necessarily be in line with your current lifestyle values. He recently got a promotion, so he inherited more hours and more stress. He recently moved uh, to a new area that he's looking to explore, try new restaurants, you know, go out for drinks, things like that. So obviously, I don't want to project a goal on a client, but I said, hey, it might be worth considering if we're living what I call weight loss purgatory, where on paper we say that we want to diet but the results are more in line with maintenance. Let's put both feet in the maintenance door right now. That doesn't mean you're giving up on your ultimate weight loss goals forever. Just think it. Think of it almost as shelving that goal for now 
fully enjoy maintenance because we're ending up here anyway. And then you can always revisit it later. And I feel like a lot of people don't even think of that as an option. They have this goal weight in their head or this body fat percentage. And I am a failure if I don't ultimately reach that when it's obviously okay to reassess as you go. Once you get healthier, those next, and in most cases, I feel like a lot of people, those five to 10 pounds generally aren't worth it in terms of what they'll cost you lifestyle-wise. Completely agree. And and on top of that, the I love the idea of having like maintenance intervals, mm-hmm. which is because this is so important. The hardest part of weight loss is keeping it off. It's not losing it, right? The hardest part is keeping it off. As we've seen historically, anybody can lose weight. Keeping it off is the hard part. And so for the client that you're just talking about, if he can maintain this for two months, well, now he's just got two months of practice at maintenance. And if you have these intervals throughout your weight loss journey, where maybe like when you, like for my brother just lost 150 pounds, like he, it's an amazing, amazing transformation and he's still going, but for the first like hundred pounds, he didn't need any maintenance break. He was just cruising. No problem. Cause he had a lot to lose. It came off relatively quickly. Um, but from there taking more maintenance breaks because it's going to get more difficult. It's you're going to be in a, uh, the calorie deficit is, deficit is going to be a little bit more of a struggle, but also when he eventually reaches his ultimate goal weight, if he has regular intervals of maintenance breaks, he's now practiced it every step along the way. Whereas most people, when they go from point A to point B, they have no maintenance breaks. They have no practice. So they get there. It's their first time practicing maintenance. So of course you're going to fail the first time you do anything. So I would rather you have four five, six, seven maintenance breaks along the way to your ultimate goal weight so that you can actually practice it. So when you get there, it's like, oh, I know how this works. I know my weight's going to fluctuate up a little bit. I know how to increase my calories. I know how to increase my portions. I know what to do to maintain that because you've practiced it before. I love that. And I also think there's the psychological upside. A person may resist it in the moment, but long-term, the upside of learning how not to just be go, 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 constantly and anything that is not consistent downward trends on the scale is a failure and it's something to panic about. So yeah, you absolutely have the logistical upside of, well, how much do I increase my calories by? What should I expect on the scale? How will this impact my workouts? Kind of the tactical stuff, but also deconditioning yourself from thinking, well, today starts my diet and I'm dieting from now until the abyss, you know, until basically I crash and burn and have to start from scratch again. So I also think there's tremendous psychological upside to, again, almost like untraining yourself from just dieting until you crash and burn and then starting fresh every single time. Completely agree. Absolutely, man. Speaking of maintaining your results, I'm curious if you've noticed any trends, specific habits, characteristics of people who successfully keep the weight off. Because obviously a lot of people like to market that and say, I'm going to show you how to lose weight once and for all. Not everybody does it. What do you feel like those people who experience long-term success have in common, whether it is logistical or whether it's a psychological thing? Yeah. So this is some, this is something I've been very interested in and I've, so I've worked with and interviewed many people who've lost and maintained over a hundred pounds weight loss, because that for me, I'm so intrigued by that. Um, and so I, even on my podcast, I will regularly get people who've lost over hundred pounds and maintained it. Cause I want to ask them questions. Now, what I'm about to say is probably not going to be something that people are happy to hear. Uh, and it might, sometimes I think it'll get a little bit kickback, but I'm just reporting on what I've found with these people. 
every single one of the people that I've interviewed who've lost over hundred pounds and maintained it had a fear component. Now, this is not like I've tried to figure out ways. Well, how it, it, let me explain it further. They were scared of something. And that's what sparked the weight loss and what still drives their motivation is the fear of something happening. And we can look at what drives motivation for people. Um, but from what I found specifically in regard to weight loss, it seems that the fear of either dying early or the fear of how people are, are perceiving or judging you, the fear of being alone, the fear of your children not being proud of you. These are the most common fears that I've heard from people who finally made that decision. Um, now, fear is not always enough. I've worked with many people and spoken to many people who were told like you are pre-diabetic, you're about to like move into a diet, uh, move into diabetic diagnosis. And that fear is not enough for them to make that change. But I, if I didn't say this, I wouldn't be being fully honest. And for the people that I've spoken to, which is many people who've lost that amount of weight and maintained it, fear has always been a component of it. I think we see the same thing with um, smoking cessation alcohol cessation. Uh, we see the same thing with, with, uh, with any type of drug cessation is there's often like when they hit rock bottom, there's a fear of something going on. And I think it's almost getting to that rock bottom is a major thing for people who, who had to lose a lot of weight. Now that's not necessarily the same for someone who wanted to lose 20 pounds or 30 pounds, but for someone coming from a huge amount of weight loss, the one consistent thing I found, because the methods have been different for the methods for their weight loss have all been different. Uh, the nutrition have all has all been different. Some people counted calories. Some people didn't count calories. Some people did strength training. Some people did Zumba. Some people like the, the methodology was so different. But the one thing I always come back to and that they, that they keep saying is there's a fear component, which just really intrigues me as a coach as like, how can I use that? as a way to help people. Now, on the other hand, as a very empathetic person, the last thing I want to do is scare the shit out of someone. Yeah, yeah, like it's not really a good coaching protocol to try and scare people. Definitely not through shaming them. It's like a really, really bad way. There is research on, on shame and guilt. And for about 3% of the population, shame will work as a, as a solid motivational tool or as a tool, but that means 97% of people, it'll actually have an adverse effect where like you have spouses who are shaming and guilting the other one for not losing weight. And like, they don't realize it's actually having a negative effect that is pushing them further away from making those positive health changes. So I've struggled with hell. How do I, how do I frame this in a way that will just give them enough of a motivational fire, just enough of a, of a little bit of a fear boost to be like, oh shit, I need to make this change. And I haven't come up with that way yet. I don't know how to do that yet, which is why my content is rather than trying to stoke fear is trying to make this process seem as simple as possible, giving them simple and easy things to do that. So if they do get motivated on their own, they now know what to do because I've provided that outline for them. That's what my outline is. That's what my content is. That's what I do with clients and members. So like, I just want to give you the framework so that when you do have that, when you come to that on your own, you have the framework laid out for you in a very simple and easy, easy, uh, easy to access form. But um, in terms of how do we actually get people to motivate themselves? That's the really million dollar question. Like, well, how, cause I mean, I know you've worked with them. I've worked with clients as well. Like a lot, most coaches won't tell you this, but I don't have a hundred percent success rate with clients. Yeah. 
Like there are many clients that do not succeed. And it often boils down to them not being ready, willing, and or able to make the change where they weren't able to say, this is important enough to me at this point in my life. And there are, are tools that we can use to try and help people move along that, that uh, change process, that change continuum, but it really does boil down to the individual and where they are in that process. So for me, like it's, it's not the most helpful answer because I'm still as a coach trying to figure this out, but giving them the framework, making it as simple, as easy as possible, making sure that they know everything works as long as they just stick with it. But from the motivational perspective, it has to come from within them. Like that, it, the only person it can come from is within them. This conversation is so fascinating to me. And there's so many little sub alleys, sub avenues that I want to go off of. But, you know, you mentioning fear, it makes me think of one of the first things I learned when taking a deeper dive into psychology, which is that people are more likely to take action, to rid themselves of pain than to pursue a pleasure. And honestly, I think I learned it under the umbrella of sales and marketing. And I was supposed to twist people's pain points and make them feel like (laughs) shit, which anyway, that's a separate conversation. Uh, But time and time again, to your point, the actual X's and O's will look a little different from person to person, but that commonality, which to me is almost like a derivative of fear of I really want to get away from this thing that's making me uncomfortable, whether it's physically, whether it's psychologically. And that pain is enough where I'm willing to tolerate the other side of the scale, which is all the suck associated with change. So it does make sense to me that it's something fear-based because I also almost think of that as getting away from these pain points, these things that are making my life more difficult. And that sucks just enough where the other side of the scale, those things don't suck quite as bad. What it'll actually take to keep the weight off and stay healthy. Now, the interesting part about this is if that wasn't interesting enough, now the inter- we see people and wonder, well, why aren't they scared? Right? Well, how could that person not be scared? I think the reason for that is because that person doesn't believe that they can succeed anyway. So they've almost just accepted their fate. So they're not as scared of it anymore because even if they do try in their mind, they won't succeed. So fate is inevitable. So whatever the thing that they would be scared of is going to happen anyway. So they're not scared enough to try that. That fear isn't enough to motivate them because they think it's not going to work anyway. I've tried it all. So now I, with that understanding, you can start to realize, oh shit, it's not that they're, they're not scared. It's not that the, the fear isn't there. It's that they don't think that even if they try, it'll work. So how can we as coaches get them to realize it will work? It will work. We just have to, we have to figure out the way to make it more consistent for you and easy and more sustainable. But that's where people are coming from. It's not that they're not scared. It's that they don't think even if they try, it's going to work. I think, you know, Marcy Nevin, she's a coach, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Marcy came on the podcast and one of the phrases that she used that I absolutely love that's so relevant here is collecting evidence, basically proving yourself wrong when you think that all you do is wrong. So when I have somebody that I'm working with, and quite honestly, I think if people had to take a lie detector test, even if somebody is working with us, a coach that they have a lot of faith in, do you truly believe this will be the last diet you ever do and that you will maintain your success forever? I think 75, I have no hard data here, but it's just off the top of my head, 75 plus percent, if not more of people would say, probably not. I might make some progress, but I'll likely regress. So what Marcy was talking about, which I love so much is making an active 
a proactive, I should say, effort to constantly scan and look for things that contradict your current self-limiting beliefs. So if you're like, well, I've tried everything and nothing ever works. Well, let's make a point to actually celebrate all these wins that are happening along the way. You told me you were an all or nothing person, but Friday, you kind of went off the rails a little bit and Saturday and Sunday were pretty solid. So right there, there's some evidence that proves your prior belief to the contrary. And when we accumulate more and more data like this, it's like, hey, you said this, but this is happening. This is happening. This is happening. That's one of the most effective ways for somebody to go, oh shit, like I can actually do this. It's no longer, oh, I really want to be, you know, the healthy fit version of Sam of this is happening. I'm currently healthy and fit. This is incredible. And then you kind of go from there. Yeah, dude, I love that. And Marcy's great. Yeah, I love that for sure. Um, going back to your backstory, Jordan, one of the things I briefly mentioned powerlifting. I want to hear about your time at Westside. And, and I'd actually love for you to explain Westside, the late Louis Simmons, for anybody who's unfamiliar with him, just the gym as a whole. Because uh, I think there could be a lot of lessons there for everyday gym goers who might initially, you know, that surface glance think, what on earth could this place have to do with me and my goals? So if you could give us a little background on Westside for anybody who's unfamiliar, and then we can talk applicable lessons to somebody who doesn't have 1200 pounds in their back. Yeah. So, so Westside, um, the owner is Louis Simmons and Louis Simmons recently passed away. He treated me like a son, uh, just like an amazing, amazing, amazing human being, not what you would picture when you think of someone saying amazing human being. I mean, this guy, like (laughs) he had tattooed head to toe. He had, you know, his dogs on his chest. He had tomahawks tattooed on his chest. Uh, He was open about he had served time in prison, Um, like just a a beast of a man, but like the biggest heart and the nicest, kindest guy in the world. Um, And he opened this gym, Westside Barbell. Now, this gym is not like a gym that you go to and you get a membership at and they have eucalyptus leaves. Like the only people who go to this gym are the ones who are invited. There's not a sign on the door. You don't know the address. You don't know where it is. The only way you know where it is, is if Louis Simmons gives you the address and invites you there. And if you're not invited there, you're not allowed in. End of story. Um, And to give you an idea, when I was talking to Louis about going there, the weakest guy at the gym squatted 800 pounds. So like that was their chump lifter was 800 pounds. Like that was their, their weakest person. Um, so when I went in that, I very quickly became their weakest lifter once I was there, but I trained there for about four months. It completely changed my life in many, many ways. My total between my squat bench press and deadlift within those few months went up 300 pounds. So 300 pounds in a matter of months between those three lifts is, is insane. And I was already, a I would say a good intermediate lifter at that point. So to have that drastic of a, of a change was pretty insane. And um, there are many aspects of this. I was actually thinking about this when we were talking about what Marcy said about collecting evidence. And one of the, the many aspects of, of Louis' methodology of his conjugate method is that you go for a new personal record every week. Every week you go for a new personal record, but it's not in the same lift. You change the lift and you change it ever so slightly. Maybe change it by half an inch or you add a little bit of accommodating resistance is you change the variation slightly. And so essentially every week, because you're changing it ever so slightly, you're guaranteeing yourself a new personal record because you've never done that lift before. It's always a new lift, even if it's just changed ever so slightly. And the reason I love that is because it, that taught me 
how to spot my own victories in life. It taught me how to look for teeny tiny things that I did on a daily basis to say, oh, that was good. That was a win there. That was a win there. It doesn't matter how different it was. It was different enough to say that was good. That was a win. And, and that's where like with collecting evidence and seeing people every day, like people think that the only way they can say that they've, they've won or they've, they hit a personal record if they've made a big jump in their progress is to say like, oh, I've lost 50 pounds. They lose, they lose seven pounds and they say, I've only lost seven pounds. That's not a win for them. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like you've lost seven, you've lost two pounds. You lost one pound. That's amazing. Like looking for these teeny tiny wins as huge wins as huge markers of progress, as Marcy says, collecting evidence. But I think it's, it's a skill to, to find that, to, to learn how to collect that evidence, to learn how to see those personal records. And training at Westside was the thing that taught me how to do that and apply it to my whole life. I fucking love this lesson, Jordan. One of the things that fires me up the most about it is when you consider the conversation of strength training to get tired, just to beat the shit out of yourself, which obviously... A lot of people do. They're looking at calories burn. They're looking at how much can I sweat? How long was I in the gym? And it's well-intentioned and you know, there's misinformation. So I get that. I want to, I don't want to knock people who are busting their ass. But when you make the transition to actually tracking your workouts, and you don't have to squat 1,200 pounds for this, but just tracking your workouts and maybe the first time you walk into your, you know, your local anytime fitness or whatever it is. You look at a 35 pound dumbbell and think, I could never do a goblet squat with that. I can't even lift that out of the rack. But you track your workouts and you go from, I don't know, maybe a 15 pound dumbbell for three sets of 10. And then over the next couple of weeks or months, you work up to 25 for four sets of 12. And if you do the math and look at how many additional pounds were moved, obviously that's just one way to measure a workout. It's astounding. You might have lifted an extra 700 pounds during your workout. And actually had the opportunity to celebrate that and get excited and be proud of yourself and become the type of person who looks at a 35 pound dumbbell or an unassisted pull up or push up from the ground and goes, yeah, I can do that shit. Because every single time I've walked into the gym, I've tracked the results and now I have this log book. And I honestly think this is one of the most underrated progress boosters is actually tracking your workouts. Obviously it sounds so elementary to some people, but a lot of people just go for that fatigue factor. But now every single time you walk in the gym, again, whether you're looking to, you know, bench squat deadlift or just get, I don't want to say just, or get your farmer's walk up or your goblet squad or your dumbbell bench, you can go, oh my God, I won here. I set a PR on this exercise and this one, I feel really good. And now that carries over into every other area of life of I'm the type of person who honors my commitments. I'm the type of person who willingly gets uncomfortable for the long-term upside and the list of benefits goes on from there. Man. Yeah. A hundred percent. Completely agree. I love that. And and you're right. It does sound elementary to say, track your workouts, but it's like the most important thing you can do like above anything else, like tracking, like aside from just getting in and doing them, tracking them is the most important thing you can. And I, very few people do it. I have stacks and stacks and stacks of notebooks from when I was in college all the way until now of like all my workouts. Like I prefer to write them down. It's like, it's so cool. I can go back and I can see where I've improved. I can see like, I, I have the history of it, but if nothing else, it keeps you consistent and it allows you to see that progress. It's, it's, it's super elementary, but just because it's elementary doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile. I think about weight loss too, where somebody comes to us and says, I've tried everything and I can't lose weight. I'm like, all right, but how many calories you've been eating? I'm not quite sure. Like, well, how much protein have you been having? <laughs> well, I, I don't know for sure. I'm like, 
perhaps that's a good place to start. So same thing with workouts. And and I feel like I'm working hard and I'm not really getting a lot of my workouts. I'm like, all right, show me what you've done for the last four weeks, the last six weeks. And like, well, I went to this class and then I did yoga. (laughs) And that's great. Again, I don't want to knock anybody who's working hard in some capacity, but if you're looking at getting your biggest bang for your buck, you got to be a little bit more specific. And I honestly think this also helps people overcome the boredom issue. Because you tell some people, understandably, you're going to do the same workout for the next four or six weeks. They go, oh, like I prefer to mix it up. But when you start stringing together these wins and lifting weights you never thought possible, to me, in most cases, that ends up being more fun, more exciting, still gives you a sense of novelty in a way compared to just picking brand new exercises every single time. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yep. Completely agree. Jordan, I want to take you back before I let you go today to the book writing process because the writer in me is very curious how on earth you tackled that between the collaboration with Mike, but also, I mean, I don't have to tell you, you could be focusing on TikTok or Instagram or writing email or all these other things. And I myself, sometimes I have these ideas, but I have a hard time prioritizing where my time is best spent. And obviously you had the book contract, so you had to write the book, but (laughs) what did that process look like? You setting aside time every day? Was that certain days per the week or of the week or how did you go about it? Yeah, it was basically every day. It was um so Mike, my co-author, he's he's very regimented with like his schedule. And I am the complete opposite. I am all over the place. And if it wasn't for my assistant cat, like I'll t- I'll actually tell you a quick story. Mike loves this story. When Mike heard the story, like it helped him solidify how we had to be um how he had to organize things as friends. Cause like, I'll tell you the story <laughs> when I was starting my business or even after it, I started in 2011, but all the way up until 2016, I was doing everything myself. I didn't have an assistant, anything. And what I used to do is when I would have phone calls, I would like schedule a phone call with someone is I would always schedule a phone call on the hour. So it wouldn't be at like 1230 or 15. It was always like at one or at two or at three. And I would always give them my phone number. And that way, if I got a phone call from some number that I didn't know on the hour, I assumed, oh, I must be having a phone call right now. And I wouldn't know who it was. I would never put it in my calendar. I was like, I hated doing it with dealing with calendars. I hated dealing with schedules. So I was like, I'll just book them on the hour and then I'll figure it out once I get on the call. And I told Mike that story and he lost it. He's like, that's absolutely fucking crazy. But ever since I was a kid, I was terrible with my agenda books in school. I was terrible with that. And I, I've always said like with social media content, people are like, do you schedule that? Like, what time do you do? I'm like, I don't know, whenever the fuck I want to. Like, I just, I just make sure I do it at some point. So if it was up to me with the book, it would have been write it whenever. Mike is the complete opposite. And so he was like, and fortunately we're such good friends. He's known me. He knows that's how I am. He was like, all right. Every day at 7 a.m., Monday through Friday, we're going to write for two hours. And I was like, cool, because my personality is like, it's very go with the flow. It's like, you tell me what to do and be there. Cool. I'll be there. Like, I don't really care. Like, I don't, I'm not a a stickler for timing. Like, cool. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So Mike was like, cool. Seven to nine every morning, Monday through Friday. Cool. Done. And that was it. And, but like, if it was up to me, I would have been all over the place. So like, and it would have gotten done, but when there's two authors, you've got to be a team about it. So it was just every morning for two hours. And that's when we cranked it out. And then we had a couple business trips 
uh, went to Florida one time, went to, uh, he came to Dallas one time and then went to Vegas one time, uh, where we just spent a week just like working hard on the book for the entire week. But the majority of it was just written for two hours a day, every day in bits and pieces. You know what I love about that answer, Jordan, it is in no offense, the least sexy, like we just, <laughs> we just woke up and made it the most important thing. And that was actually bringing us way back to the beginning of our conversation. The template you gave me for structuring your day as an online coach or trainer is you have the most important task that gets done first. And it's the same thing here. So I actually like that you didn't have to light candles and, you know, do backflips <laughs> and like do a mobility flow to get rich. Just, no, I just woke up and did the shit every day. And then you accumulate those results. So I think that's incredible. I, I see people posting their morning routines and night routines. And if it works for you, amazing. I've never been that guy at all. Like I just, it's hard for me to describe how opposite of that. I really am. It's really just like, all right, what do I have to do? And I'll just get that done. Like, I don't need to make my chai tea latte and light the candles and journal. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But for me, I'm, I just never worked for me. And like, I've seen those things. I'm like, am I missing out by like not having the chai latte and not like doing the incense and meditation before like 8am, but just, I don't know. It's just never worked for me. I think it is another testament though, to bring this back to fitness for a second of the most can, or the most important variables in any pursuit of success. And again, this is crazy, unsexy, no shit, Sam, but consistency and effort, how that actually gets done can vary a lot. But if those two things are in check, whether it's in six months or 60 months, something good is going to happen that you're, you know, that you're attempting to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember Eric Cressy posted one of the funniest tweets I've ever seen about morning routines. I think it was a couple of years ago, but he was saying all these 21 year old kids posting about your morning routines. Like don't post about that when you don't have a couple of kids who are like trying to tear down the Christmas tree at four in the morning. <laughs> like it just, it, it, I was like, man, that's so funny. Cause I, I think about it more now as my kid is on the way and being like, yeah, things are about to get crazy. It's very different when you're the only one you have to care about. Mm -hmm. And like, you can wake up whenever you want and it's a, it's a peaceful, quiet house and their kids aren't running around. Mm -hmm. So it, do it, do whatever you can manage and whatever you can do consistently. That's really, it's not sexy. It's not, it's not, it is very elementary. It's not crazy. It's just, it's what works. The baby is certainly not going to say Jordan's in a writing block right now. I get a leave. I'll cry in two hours. Like it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly right. Yeah. Jordan, the last thing I have before I let you go is what I call the fast five. So five questions that do not have to do with health and fitness, just whatever the first thing that come to mind is. Okay. If you could only listen to one band or artist music forever, who'd you pick? Coldplay. Fair enough. If you could only <laughs> eat one food for the rest of your life or meal, and let's say all the nutritional boxes are checked, so it could be whatever you want. And I think I know pepperoni the answer pizza. to this. Yeah. <laughs> pepperoni <laughs> pizza. That's a popular one. If you could teleport anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? Israel. Whereabouts? Haifa, Northern. Is that, what's your connection to that area? Uh, I have family there. I have family okay. there. It's a beautiful, but it's also one of the best parts about this area, people hear Israel and they either they see what the media has shown them or they just think of this like barren desert with bombs going on. It's not at all. Haifa specifically is one of the greatest parts of it is because uh, that city 
has so it's but it's a lot of Jews, a lot of Muslims, and a lot of Christians in that city. And you go to the city center, and there's a Star of David. There's like the moon with the uh, the like the the Muslim symbol, the symbol of Islam, and then they have the the cross as well. And in the schools there, like Christians, Muslims, and Jews, they all go to school together. They do things together, and people don't think about this when they think of Israel. They they there are many things that come to mind, but that city in particular is so welcoming of everybody and it's just it's beautiful and it's amazing and to have that in the middle of the middle east when which there's so many issues in that region like it's it's a really an oasis there so i love that that's incredible i would love to visit at some point jordan what do you value the most in a friendship um what do i value the most in a friendship probably vulnerability the ability to say like really, and I, I was struggling between honesty and vulnerability. I think vulnerability, I would say is more important and with vulnerability comes honesty, but with honesty, vulnerability doesn't necessarily come. So I think vulnerability encompasses honesty as, as like a, a part of it, but being able to really be who you are uh, and be okay. Like saying like what you believe and, and trusting that the person on the other end will be accepting of that. That is a wonderful answer. I honestly don't think, again, 50-something episodes in, I don't think anybody's mentioned that yet. I, but I love the way you articulated that difference between the two. Uh, Jordan, last question for you. What are you most grateful for right now? My wife and our daughter in her belly. Uh, just super excited. Like, Hopefully, it's an easy pregnancy and easy birth and everyone's healthy, but just super grateful for that. And um, like, I can, it hasn't even happened yet. And I can already see how my mindset is shifting and how like my view on life is shifting already. So just very grateful for, for that and what's to come. I can't even imagine. I'm so pumped for you, man. Thank you, brother, man. You're, you're amazing. You're super. And I, I do like at least two to four podcasts a day, like super well-spoken, really articulate. Um, I'm, I'm beyond impressed. I'll come on anytime you want to have me on. Uh, I think you're amazing. And if you do ever get to Israel, let me know. My family would love to host you. Like, I don't say that lightly. Like if you ever want a family to stay with in Israel, in Haifa, like, let me know, we'll put you up. We'll, they'll take you out. They'll show you around. You'll have a, a bed to sleep on and, and food to eat and people to, to take care of you. Jordan, that seriously means so much to me. I've told the story a lot on other interviews that I've done that you are largely responsible, as I mentioned before, for me taking the business online. So indirectly, a lot of the things that I get to experience now, the people that I get to reach started from that webinar in 2016. So I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. Um, where can people find you? Where do you want to send them to the inner circle, Instagram page, website? What are we thinking? Yeah, if you Google my name, Jordan Syatt, you'll find my podcast, Instagram, everything. Just, yeah, just use the Google machine. It's fine. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I do appreciate it. Thank you, man.